Hello, Potters, and welcome back to episode 5 of me reading Children of Eden by Joey Garcefa. Um, yesterday we read chapters 7 and 8, I believe. Yes, we read chapters 7 and 8. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, my, my brain just stopped working. I lost my train of thought. Um, quick little recap before we get into chapters 8 and, er, before we get into chapters 9 and 10. But before we do that, um, oh my god, I lost my train of thought again. You know what, never mind. Um, anyway, back to what I was going to do. Um, so, quick little recap of... Um, the last two chapters we've read. So, in chapter 7, Rowan and Lark are walking home. And, um, they just talk, you know, about just everything, really. You know, talking about the Dominion, which is just like... As Lark describes it, it's this cult or a political movement, depending on who you talk to. And these are people who believe that humans should, like rule over all of the earth and they're superior to all other creatures um and they're just like these really corrupt people who think the earth should be dead you know and blah 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 blah. so just really bad people who get arrested you know it's like as she was saying because they were walking past a dominion member who was like you know talking about his beliefs she said that if people started to listen to him, he would be arrested. So, people like that just, you know, they get in trouble for their actions and stuff. And a lot of people think they're really stupid. Um, so, Lark also brings up the fact that she has seizures. Um, that's, that's a small little detail that's brought up for not a super long amount of time, but it does kind of come into play later on, so there's that. Um, Rowan finds out she lives in the house of the creator of the Ecopanopticon, Aaron Albaz, um, and her house is stone because he wanted to, like, still have a connection to the earth and whatnot, um... So, she's basically one of his descendants. That's not the right word. Is it? Is it the right word? I think it's the right word. Yeah, it's the right word. I thought I was wrong for a second, but no. I'm smarter than I... I just lost the word again. I'm smarter than I think I am. There's that. I'll say that. <laughs> um. So, but anyway... So Rowan finds out that she is the descendant of Aaron Albaz, one of the descendants. And they're walking home and then Rowan says bye to Lark and she climbs back up over the wall and heads back into her house. And all of her family are sleeping, but then as she's walking back, Ash wakes up and Ash realizes that she went out. Um... And they have a little discussion about that. And then Ash says... Ash is, like, talking about how brave Rowan is. And, like, how she should have been the first child and the sibling that gets to go out and live a normal life. And it's... I don't know. It's just sad. 
you know, that he believes that. And he calls himself a coward and stuff. It just, they kind of just have this little, like, more emotional conversation. Um, And then both of them go back to bed. And then the next morning, Rowan wakes up and she heads downstairs. Ash and her mom are both out, um, Ash at school and her mom at work. And Rowan has this little exchange with her dad, this little kind of bitter exchange, which is really our first um, time seeing, you know, what her and her dad's relationship is like. Because she talks about it a little previously. Um, She talks about how her dad never really looks at her with much love, you know, and like... Like, when she's sick, you know, her dad always heals her, but her mom is the one who always, like, heals her with love. You know what I mean? Like, she actually cares and puts in the effort instead of just doing it to do it. Um, so, but here is the first time we're actually really seeing, like, an interaction between the two of them. Um, and he really just does not treat her like a person, you know? He treats her like she is just this problem that he needs to get rid of, and, like, she's just a roadblock, um, that is, like, blocking the way to the rest of his successes, and he just- he does not treat her very good, of course. He is not that good of a father, so we kind of get to see that now. Um... And then chapter eight, Rowan is just doing some research on the resources for Eden and just her living in the home of Aaron Albaz. And like she does some more research on who he is as a person. And we kind of learn some of his backstory a little bit. We learn about, you know, like how his ideas were treated by other people and like what led up to him making the EcoPanopticon and blah, 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 blah. And we kind of just learn about his life and stuff. Um, and then, um, her mom, Rowan's mom, tells her that her lenses are ready to be implanted. Um, and they talk about second children a little bit, and her mom kind of confirms that there are, that there are other second children. I mean, like, she hasn't really met any, but, like, she knows that some are out there. Um, But she talked about how when second children are caught, because a lot of the times they do get caught after they're, like, given a new identity, she talks about how they kind of just disappear. So, um, and then Rowan gets dressed and she heads back outside to meet up with Lark a second time. And that is where we left off. Sorry, that was a really long, um, (laughs) that was a really, really long recap. Um, I had to go back into the chapters and look because for whatever reason, I could not remember. Normally, I can easily remember the recaps, but there was something about today that was just not allowing me to remember, so. But anyway, let us get started with chapter nine. Chapter nine. Panic hits me as soon as we slide through the turnstile. Walking through a crowd on a public street where everyone goes about their own business is one thing. But here, there's an actual checkpoint of sorts, where passengers have to pay for their ticket. I try to back up, but my thighs hit the turnstile's padded bar. One way, Lark says, catching my arm. More loudly, she adds for the benefit of those behind us annoyed at the holdup. 
Don't worry, the bathroom's over this way. What if they- I begin, but she shushes me with a squeeze. You'll be fine. I'll put the fare on my chip. Just act normal. Vic! Money! I hadn't even thought about that. There are so many little things that could catch me out. I don't have any funds, of course, nor do I know how to use them or what anything costs. Lark goes first to show me how it's done. It's simple. That's what looks like a mirror at the entrance to the autoloop platform. Oh, I read that wrong. There's what looks like a mirror at the entrance to the autoloop platform. She lifts her glasses and smiles into it, adjusting her flower-colored hair coquettishly and smiles- or says brightly, I'm already doing just as bad as I was yesterday. Anyway, she lifts her glasses and smiles into it, adjusting her flower-colored hair coquettishly and says brightly, Two, please. The mirror quickly dims and brightens again as it reads her eye implants. Her currency has been transferred, and two small chits roll out from under a slot in the mirror. She heads through the corridor leading to the station platform. There are people in uniform everywhere. Only one is a green shirt, lounging against the wall at the far end of the station, chewing at a hangnail. But even the station attendants alarm me in their crisp, official-looking costumes. They have the bullseye insignia of the center on their labels, and even if they're low-level functionaries, they still represent the establishment that is my natural enemy. Whose lair I'm attempting to infiltrate. Ash was wrong about me. I am afraid. But I hold myself steady, and even force a playful sidelong smile for the ticket taker. A smile that, pre that pretends to openness, but actually hides my eyes just in case he can glimpse anything from the side of the glasses. He takes my ticket and lets me pass. I feel elated with that simple success. I was afraid, but I did it anyway. Maybe, I think, that's what it means to be brave. Maybe Ash was right about me after all. Holding my head as high as any firstborn, I follow Lark onto the platform. Within a few minutes, the auto loop pulls into the station and we step aboard. When the pneumatic doors <laughs> slide breathily shut, I flinch. I'm trapped! My speed and agility won't do a thing for me if there's trouble in here. But Lark sits on a molded lime green seat and slouches down so her knees press against the fuchsia- Press- Press against the fuchsia seat in front of her. Sorry. Good lord. I slide in beside her, mimicking her position as the auto loop lurches forward. It gains speed rapidly, accelerating on a monorail that coils in a spiral around Eden, from the center to the outer circles. Where? I try again, but she shushes me. Just look around. This is your first view of the rest of Eden. I'm curious to know what you think. She stands and wiggles until we've switched seats and I'm by the window. And I look. at scenery more vivid than a data block, streaming past me so fast that it almost blurs. Whenever I catch sight of something interesting, an oddly shaped building, the swirling green inside an algae spire, I have to whip my head around to follow it. Everything slips behind me. My body and my life are moving forward faster than I ever dared to dream. The quality of the neighborhoods changes quickly. As I watch the gaudy lights of the inner circles dim to muted pastels, the chick- the, the chick- <laughs> the chic evening clothes turn to darker, perfunctionatory, casual garments. There are so many big words in here. Sorry. <laughs> I realize we were on an express route to the outer circles. After what feels like a long time later, we slow our headlong rush and descend to ground level. Figures become once again people, not blurs. 
When I was in my own entertainment circle, people traveled mostly in pairs, sometimes in loose, casual formations. It seemed as if everyone knew one another, like no matter their age, they were all basically part of the same crowd. People flowed from one group to another. Without exception, they were smiling, laughing, happy. Here, in this dingy outer circle, people either move through the streets in tight packs or completely alone. The packs look uniform and tough. They don't wear the same clothes exactly, but each group seems to have a common theme. There's one pack in black, with tight shining clothes and flashes of metal. I can't tell if they're studs or armor or even weapons. Another group seems to be made up of people like the fascinating snake man I saw in the Rainforest Club. Like some peaceable, and at the same time savage, kingdom, they flock together, birds with cats, wolves with sheep. Moving among them are people utterly alone. Most are hunched and introverted, eyes on the ground, taking care to avoid contact with anyone else. But a few are different. Here and there as the auto loop cruises into the final station, I see solitary men and one woman who look as if they'd be a match for even the black-clad group. They are upright, swaggering, arrogant in their bearing. They walk as if they owned the earth. The auto loop has almost stopped when I see him. A young man not much older than me, with bright chestnut hair and a face set in hard lines. He isn't as big as some of the other loners, but in a glance I can tell that he doesn't care, that he has absolute confidence that he can handle anything the world might throw at him. For a second his face turns, and I catch sight of a crescent-shaped scar from the corner of his left eye to just below his cheekbone. I pull my head back so he doesn't see me, but he was only glancing at the train. The next second we've pulled into the covered station. Lark jumps to her feet, looking excited. Come on, she says, pulling me after her and lunging for the door. Only a couple of other people rise along with us. Some of the inner circle travelers seem to be tourists. That's the Dead Knight gang, I do believe, one woman says in cultured tones to her cheek friend. And do you see that splendid specimen? That's a jaguar. They say she once killed five men in one night. I heard it was four men, a woman, and a child, her companion says, shivering deliciously. They giggle softly behind their hands. The boisterously civilized inner rings were one thing, but Lark actually expects me to go out into the maelstrom of danger and strange humanity? Do you trust me? Lark asks when she sees the naked uncertainty on my face. I only pause for a second. In that instant, an image of mom flashes through my mind. Don't trust anyone except family, she would tell me. Your very life is at stake. I trust you completely, I say firmly. Lark smiles and takes me into the outer circles. <clears throat> what can I say about that night? To say it was like nothing I'd ever experienced would be pointless. I've never experienced anything. Like nothing I'd ever imagined? I didn't even know enough of the world, and people, and pleasure, to begin to imagine anything like it. A girl who keeps her wits about her isn't in any danger, Lark tells me as we saunter through the dim streets. They're not bad people. Just poor, that's all. Most would never dream of, it, of hurting anyone. As long as you don't make any mistakes. <clears throat> Apparently, there are a lot of potential mistakes I might make. One gang, she says, would attack me if I spit within their sight. No worry about that. Even if I wasn't too polite, my mouth is far too dry. Another gang insists that anyone they pass should immediately stop and turn their backs on them. For them, keeping an eye on them is a sign of mistrust and a grave insult. 
If you turn your back, though, you're showing you trust to them, and so they'll leave you alone. I would be so lost without her. Again. She takes me to a club, a place both calm and wild at the same time. No one is dancing. There are booths and tables, and recessed nooks hidden by curtains. People drink bitter black coffee, or as near as we can get, synthetic caffeine in a liquid suspension, and listen to someone on stage say perplexing, deep things that sound seditious. I don't quite understand him, but he speaks about freedom and autonomy and endless open spaces in a way that make my heart soar. We take a booth and listen to the conversations all around us. Everyone has an opinion. Voices rise. The mood turns agitated. Someone throws a chair across the room, shouting, Better to be killed than lied to! There's a quick brawl before large bouncers tattooed all over and fern fronds haul out the offenders, and everyone else goes back to arguing about everything under the sun. It is wonderful. My skin is positively tingling with excitement, or maybe caffeine, when Lark pays the tab and leads me out. But I like it so much here, I protest. It was just right for me. An exciting spectacle I could enjoy without directly participating in. No one cared that I didn't make eye contact or engage in debate. They were too intent on their own points, too in love with the sound of their own voices to bother with me. It was like a classroom for me, a lesson in social behavior. But there's more, even better. Now that we're properly twitchy, we have to work it off. I don't know what she means, but I soon find out when we enter a warehouse tricked out like a jungle. It is almost entirely unlike the Rainforest Club. I can see the difference now. That was all about decor and style, about creating an impression. This place is as close to real as our dead planet can get. They seem to have ripped up a chunk of actual primordial forest from before the eco-fail, complete with deep, earthy, mossy smells, vines with wicked thorns, and shrieking beasts that swipe at my ankles. It seems thrillingly dangerous, utterly genuine. It is dark, a simulated moon hanging gibbous in the sky, but I can see people dashing across open spaces, diving for cover. What is this place? I ask. Lark looks at me with burning eyes. Primal, she says, and hands me a stylized gun. For the next hour, we work as a team shooting laser beams at our opponents as we leap like mad monkeys through the underbrush. It is a battle of man against man, but also of man against nature. The jungle doesn't take sides. Simulated serpents strike our ankles, giving us electric shocks and deactivating our weapons for several minutes. Robotic jaguars knock us to the ground just as we're about to score a point. By the end, Lark is out of the game, and so is almost everyone else. It's just me against a team of three, evidently experienced players in, match in matching uniforms. Without Lark holding me back, I scale a tall tree and annihilate them from thirty feet up in the air. I'm panting, sweating, exhausted, and utterly happy. Oh, Lark, I say when I slither down the artificial tree. This is perfect! Just perfect! Thank you! She sways toward me for a second, then pulls away. The night's not over yet, she says with her quirky smile. I can't even imagine what might be in store for me next. Dancing? Racing? Fighting? It is something completely different, and infinitely better an abandoned algae spire. It hasn't worked for years, Lark says. My dad was fixing the pumping system, but they canceled the repairs before he could get it operational. I snatched his keycard. The door clicks unlocked, 
and she pulls it open on creaking hinges. Inside, it's pitch black. I hang back, but Lark pulls me into the darkness and shuts the door behind us. The power's been cut, she says, but I know the way. Her voice is like a beacon in the black. I fumble for her hand, but she's suddenly out of reach. Where are you? I call, and her voice answers from too far away. Walk forward, she instructs. She sounds farther away and now. I have no idea of the size or shape of the room, what might be hiding in it. Where are you? I call again. I feel lost. Lost. Disoriented. Wait for me! She laughs, low and rich. You're safe. Just walk. But I can't see! What if there's an obstacle, a chasm, a green shirt lurking in the dark? I feel paralyzed. Do you trust me? Lark asks again. I do trust her. I might not have much experience with people, but I know in my heart that Lark will never do me any harm. I take a deep breath and step into the obsidian darkness. My paces are shuffling, tentative, but eventually my outstretched hands meet, Lark meet Lark's fingers. They intertwine like vines. I can't see a thing, but I can almost feel her smiling. Now up, she says, and guides my hands to the rungs of a ladder. We climb forever, hundreds of feet. The journey is surreal. We don't talk, but I hear her breathing just above me, hear the sounds of her feet hitting each slippery metal rung. Without any visual to orient myself, I feel like I'm climbing in a dream. And Lark, above, is leading me deeper, higher to some place I never imagined. Finally, in eternity of climbing later, I hear the scrape of a metal latch and suddenly Lark is illuminated from above by a faint glow of light. She climbs out of the narrow ladder shaft, and when I clamber after her, I find myself looking down on all of Eden. The pale green concentric circles stretch out farther than I can see, away from the glittering eye of the center. I feel like the ecopanopticon itself, looking down on all that remains of mankind. How do you even find this place? I ask her. Then before she can answer, I add, And what's an inner circle girl like you doing all the way out here in the boonies anyway? We're far from our home circle. Through the height and the darkness lend a glamour to the streets directly below us. I can still see the squealer, the run-down buildings, the furtive scurrying of the pedestrians. I used to live here. I gasp. I knew that Lark had relocated from another circle when she was about ten years old. <clears throat> when she came to the Kalahari school, Ash was selected to show her around. He told me about her that night, and every night since. But I'd assumed she'd moved from the next ring out. That, apparently, wasn't too uncommon. Moving so far inward from one of the otter circles was unheard of. I remember that her arrival in our elite circle caused a bit of a stir. Ash told me that some of her classmates wouldn't invite her to birthday parties, and that her parents were shunned. Even my dad wondered aloud at dinner one evening whether Ash shouldn't curtail his friendship with a girl of low origin, as he put it. This wasn't quite the outermost circle, but it was close maybe two rings in from the slums of the farthest outer circle. I couldn't imagine Lark living here. She told me her story briefly while I tried to hide any trace of surprise or earth-forbid disgust from my face. She came from a diligent, hard-working family who lived in a multi-story tenement in, the, in this district. They scraped by for a living and were happy. Sure, there were problems. Sometimes there were blackouts or the water turned the color of rust. Sometimes green shirts hauled a neighbor away. Once, she even found a dead body on the front stoop. But it wasn't bad. You knew who your friends were. And everyone here could keep a secret. 
She told me how her father had discovered something while working on the water conduits deep under the spire. He was a construction worker, basically, laying pipes and repairing valves. Then one day, he... He found something. What? I naturally want to know. She shrugs. He wouldn't say. Not even to his boss. But he managed to find a center official, told him what he found, and almost immediately afterward he got a center job in the city planning division, and we moved to the inner circle. And you have no idea what he discovered? No. He told us just enough that we'd understand why our fortune suddenly changed. But he made it clear that his life depended on secrecy. And then... Her brow crinkles. I mentioned it a couple of years later, and it was like he didn't remember it at all. He said he'd gotten promoted because he invented a new kind of automatic shut-off valve and the people at the center were so impressed they elevated his status. Maybe he was just really committed to the lie, I suggest. Maybe he was protecting you. Maybe, she says, then shakes her head so her lilac hair brushes her cheeks. But let's not talk about that. I brought you here for the view. Look up. I've been so focused on looking down at the city I've learned- I mean, I've yearned for all my life that I haven't looked skyward. I follow her gaze up to the heavens and gasp. The tip of the algae tower spirals to a sharp point above us, but beyond that, the universe. My fingertips reach in my pocket to touch the ancient photo I've brought. The stars seem so much clearer here than in the outer circle. From my courtyard, I can only see the faintest pinpricks of light in the sky. Maybe because the city lights are so bright. The gaudy earthly glare is too much competition for those distant heavenly fires. It's amazing, I breathe, transfixed. The stars have patterns that I've never seen. I've read in ancient history lessons about how people have given clusters of stars names. The bear, the dragon, the crab. I almost think I can see shapes in the random twinkling dots. That's Orion, the hunter. Lark says, pointing out the line of three bright stars marking his belt, and then showing me his starry sword. And that's the Big Dipper. She settles on the cool, smooth ground, her hands behind her head as she gazes up. It feels natural to lie beside her, so I do, our flanks touching. My dad loves the stars, she says. He taught me every single one. Their names, their patterns, their movements. It was the thing I missed most of all when we moved to the inner circle. I can only see a fraction of these from home. So, I come out here whenever I can, to look at the stars and think and dream. What do you dream about? I ask. I feel like I'm falling into a trance of happiness. Life couldn't get any more sweet. Oh, lots of things. Getting out of Eden. Walking through a real forest. Having a government that doesn't lie all the time. I turn to look at her, my breath brushing her cheek. Oh, forget I said that last one. We can talk about that tomorrow. The word tomorrow makes me giddy. I want there to be a thousand tomorrows. Ten thousand tomorrows. I do a few things along with a few people in this circle. Things that make it convenient to have a good place like this to hide. But don't worry about that now. I'm not inclined to worry about anything just now. What do you dream about? She asks me. Finding someone, I say immediately. Someone who I can trust. Someone who makes me complete. I bite my lip, and my face flushes hot. That's stupid, I know. It's just that I never had anybody, really. Not someone who I chose, or who chose me. Lark rolls toward me, propping herself up on her elbow. She looks into my eyes and says solemnly, I choose you. 
Then slowly she bends until her lips touch mine. Her lilac hair tumbles over us, and through it I can see the stars shining. Oh, Earth! They're spinning! They're dancing! At home in bed that night, that morning, I lie awake and confused. I don't know what to feel, and a hundred conflict conflicting thoughts bombard me. I bounce from elation to concern to fear, and back to elation again. Always back to elation. Before we parted, I gave her my prized possession. My ancient image of a starscape over a vast chasm, an image captured just before the eco fail. When she looked at it, I remember she frowned a bit. What is it? I asked her. I don't know. It reminds me of... something. I can't quite place it. Let me think, and I'll tell you tomorrow. Tomorrow. Finally, I fall asleep. It can't be an hour later when Mom is shaking me awake, hissing into my ear. Get up. We have to leave. Now. And that is the end of chapter nine. Da 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 da. So, in about probably a minute, we have two pretty big, exciting things happen. First, Lark and Rowan kiss. Eee! Sorry, that was really gross. I just, we love LGBTQ plus representation. Um, and not just like for putting LGBTQ plus representation in, like not just for the purpose of having it be there, but like having it be natural and like, like most straight couples are in like just about every work of fiction you've ever seen. <laughs> so, I don't know, just really nice. So, quick little recap. Um, Lark and Rowan went to explore some more of Eden um, the next day. And they go and do some fun things. Like, they go to this um, like little coffee shop type of thing. And, like, I don't know. They kind of listen to this poet dude and they fight and stuff. And then they head to basically like this... Um, why am I forgetting what this is called? <laughs> laser tag. They go to a laser tag place and they do that for the first time. And then Lark takes Rowan to this abandoned algae spire where her dad worked on things. And they hang out up there. And Lark, we kind of get a little bit more backstory from Lark. Um, just Lark explaining how she got to the inner circles um, and why. And we learn that her dad discovered something, allegedly, but he didn't say what. So that's kind of kind of weird, kind of creepy, but you know. And then he kind of just, like, acted like he forgot about it. So. Um, and then Lark and Rowan kiss. And Rowan heads back home, and then her mom wakes her up. And tells her that they have to leave immediately. So, luckily enough, I'm not leaving you on a cliffhanger yet. We still have one chapter to go before this episode's over. And there's my watch going off. Just a second. Okay. Um, just to put it into perspective, um, we're on page 94. So, just to get a little idea. Okay. Chapter 10. 
Adrenaline surging through me like lightning bolts. I'm on my feet before I'm even aware that I'm not dreaming. No, I mutter even as I move. Let me get back to my dream of happiness. My first thought, really my only thought in these hazy first moments of waking, is that I can't let anything get in the way of meeting Lark again tonight. I don't know what that kiss meant to her or to me. I don't know how I feel about it, but I need more time to find out. It's a while before I realize that this isn't just an acceleration of the plan, a blip that will keep me from Lark for the night, a delay of my hopes. This is the end of everything I've known. They found out about us. About you, Mom tells me as she starts to throw all my clothes into a trash bag. I sit down hard in my bed. Oddly, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, why can't I use a suitcase? We have to burn your clothes. We have to get rid of everything that has to do with you. When you're gone, we'll sterilize the room, eliminate any prints, kill any DNA evidence of you. My brain is still fuzzy with sleep and with Lark. But mom, what will I wear? It seems like the most important question somehow in my sleep-addled confusion. When I fell asleep, I was planning my outfit for tonight with Lark, and now... It doesn't matter! Anything! Just throw something on! She's completely distraught. My clothes are flying, tumbling, balled up as she hurls them into bags. Hurry! Get dressed! She tosses me a belted tunic in rich saffron orange and a pair of shimmering gold pants from Ash's school uniform. Slowly, I pull on the pants and turn my back to strip off my nightshirt. The tunic top is made of the supple material that's supposed to mimic the softest doe skin. I haven't worn it before. Mom picked it up only a week ago, and it still has the price tag on it. It costs an, an exorbitant fee. I stand there, shirt poised to slip over my head, an idea almost clicking. But not quite. Hurry! Mom barks again, and I realize she's terrified. Whatever I was almost thinking is lost. I belt the tunic and turn, kneeling down beside her as she throws away my entire life. Mom, stop a second and tell me what's happening. I try to sound calm, soothing, but her naked fear is contagious. She takes a deep breath, then another, looking like she's considering how much I should be allowed to know. Tell me everything, I insist. Our friend in the center just tipped me off that they know about a second child. He didn't have many details, so I don't have any idea how they could possibly know. But now we're all in terrible danger. Oh, great earth. I've been so selfish. All this time I was only thinking of, my, thinking of myself, of taking my life into my own hands and freeing myself from my captivity. Hold on. Again, I'm sitting in front of the window and the sun's in my eyes. Um, okay. Of making a friend for the first time in my life. I took pains not to be caught, but I was thinking only of me not being caught. It was a risk I was willing to take. For myself, and I trusted first in my own abilities, then in Lark, to keep me safe. I never really thought about what it would do to my family if anyone found out about me. It was in the back of my mind, but only as a logical thread, not as a real conscious fear. Now, looking into my mother's frantic eyes, I realize what I might have done. To her, to Ash, to my father. But how could they know about me? If a scanner or bot had detected me, I would have been swarmed with green shirts right away. They wouldn't have given me a chance to go home. If I had been spotted and marked, I would have known. The reaction would have been immediate and brutal. Unless someone had turned me in. Someone who I'd shared my secret with. Someone I trusted. I shake my head. No, not Lark. It can't have been Lark. 
She would never do that. I think of the passion in her eyes when she talks about the problems of Eden, the inequality, the injustice. I remember the way she looks at me, soft and curious. I won't let myself think that, I decide, but I'd be a fool not to. Right now, though, I need to calm Mom down and figure out more clearly exactly what's going on. Do we really have to leave now? I ask, my hand reassuringly on her arm. Are they coming right this second? She takes a deep, shuddering breath. No. Maybe. He just said that there's a report of a second child who's been spotted in this circle. She claps her fingers over my caressing hand. You've been careful, haven't you? I know you sometimes go to the top of the wall and peek out. I bow my head, ashamed. Oh, Mom, I long to say. I've done so much more than that. I thought about telling you not to do it, Mom continues. But I know how hard it's been for you all these years. I didn't want to begrudge you that little bit of freedom and, explore and exploration. It's so inadequate compared to what you deserve. I'm sorry, Mom. I, I don't think anyone spotted me. Just a green shirt and lark and maybe even other people, too. Oh, how could I have been so stupid, so selfish? I don't think it was anything you did. It might not even be you. There are other second children in Eden. He didn't think they'd zeroed in, but he knows that they're tracking a second child in our circle. It's only a matter of time before they figure it all out. When they come, every trace of you has to be gone. You have to be gone. I nod, understanding. It's a shock, and I know that wherever I go I'll have to lay low for a while, but when the hunt dies down, when they don't find me, I'll be able to see my family again. See Lark again. Unless she... No, I can't go down that road. I'm sorry this is all so abrupt. I thought we'd have more time. There are things... But I'll save that for later. I'm taking you to get your implants now, and then you're going directly to your new foster home. Oh, there's so much I have to tell you. She throws her arms around me, and for a second I feel like a little kid again, small and utterly safe in her embrace. It's okay, I reassure her. I know it might be a while, but when I come back, you can... Her look stops me, chilled. Rowan, you can never come back. I feel as if I'm dangling from the top of a wall high as a mountain, clinging by a single hold that's starting to slip. I grasp at anything. You mean, not until it's safe? Oh, my love, never. You can never come home. You can never see any of us again. My hand slips and I tumble into the abyss. She tells me how long they've been working to arrange this foster family for me. A chance, to a chance at a completely new life where I can be real, accepted, walk the streets of Eden as a free individual. I listen numbly as she explains how I can have a new family, which baffled me before. I thought someone would take me in for love, for commitment to a cause, for belief that all people deserve to live. But no, turns out someone is just doing it for the money. Just like the way my family hid me, the extra living child. Some families with an eye to profit hide the fact that their one legitimate child dies. Instead of reporting it to the center, they do whatever possible to make it look like the child is still thriving. Maybe they say that, they, that she moved to another circle to help her grandmother. Maybe she supposedly developed an illness and rarely leaves the house. They hold the spot of the missing child, and all the while work with black marketers to find some second child to replace the dead one. Of course, the family has paid an exorbitant fee for taking the child. It's enough to set up someone in a whole new circle, if they're clever enough to hide the source of their windfall. 
Needless to say, it's mostly people in the outer circles who hide a child's death and hope to profit from it. Mom tells me that the family I'll be going with lives in the next but one outermost ring. The slums, even more decrepit than Lark's old circle. I feel sick. I've become a financial transaction. Mom, they don't know for sure who I am or where I live. Can't I get the surgery and... I was going to say hide out with a friend, but I can't tell her about Lark. Mom would be so disappointed in me if she knew what I'd done. And she'd believe that Lark betrayed me. Betrayed all of us. I wouldn't be able to stand hearing her say that. I can fight the truth in my own head, but if it comes from my mom's mouth, it will seem real. I don't want to believe it. I can't. I can hide out, just ride the auto loop for a few days, find a place in the outer circles to hole up. And then after a few days, a week, if no one here has investigated anything, Mom shakes her head sorrowfully. It has to be now, and it has to be for good. She seems to harden herself, standing and turning her back on me to resume throwing my every possession into the trash. I'm hurt, until I realize that she's just trying to carry on, to protect me as always. If she gives in to emotion, she'll collapse and she won't be able to protect me. Protect me by giving me away to money-hungry strangers. I grit my teeth. This is my life! Two nights in the city were enough to fill me with a sense of my own purpose and strength. I decide here and now that even though I have no choice but to go along with Mom's plans, there's no way in hell I'm going to stick with them for the rest of my life. I'll get in the eye implant so I can fit in with the rest of Eden. I'll go live with the, merce the mercenary family that wants my family's money more than they want me. But it won't be for good. There will come a time where I can be with my family again. When I can be with Lark. When I can stand proudly and be myself, and be whoever I want, even if I am a second child. I can't fight this now, but I see a battle coming. Resolutely, I pick up my favorite stuffed animal, a ragged chimpanzee I've cuddled with since I was a baby, and shove it into one of the garbage bags. At that moment, Ash comes in, rubbing the sleep from his eyes. Mom, with her back turned to, me, turned to him, flashes me an urgent, adamant look and shakes her head almost imperceptibly. I immediately understand. Don't tell Ash too much. But is that fair to him? To me? What's going on? He asks. Why are you throwing away all of Rowan's stuff? Mom composes her face carefully. I'm not throwing it away, silly. She lies with an ease that astounds me. There's been a change in plans, and the doctor who will perform her surgery is being reassigned tomorrow. So we have to go tonight, right now, to get her implants. We decided it's best if she moves to her new house right away. Since we're moving fast, we don't have time to pack up neatly. She turns to me. But you don't mind, do you, Rowan? I gulp, but manage to say. No, of course not. Who cares about a few wrinkles? I'll iron once I get there. She's really not going to tell him that someone is actively hunting for me? That I'm never supposed to come back? I open my mouth to tell him myself, then snap it shut. I'm a coward. I don't want to see the look of despair in his eyes. Selfishly, I leave it to Mom to tell him, to bear the brunt of his sorrow. I wonder if he'll forgive me, once he knows. But I just want this last moment with him that isn't marred with too much grief. I will hold it for both of us. What he knows is sad enough. He's taking it pretty well, though. Mom excuses herself. I hear the hiccup of a sob as she departs. 
And Ash dumps out a trash bag and starts methodically folding the clothes Mom shoved inside. The repetitive, precise action seems to give him focus, and he talks calmly as he folds. But he doesn't talk about what's happening. He tells me about yesterday at school, how he missed a question on his eco-history test, how the latest fashion called for tiny iridescent robotic butterflies in the hair. How Lark seemed strangely tired but happy all day. I understand. He desperately wants everything to be normal. He doesn't want the patterns of the last 16 years to change. I don't know what I'm going to do without you, I blurt out suddenly. The shirt he's folding drops into his lap in a messy heap. He gives a little laugh. You? What about me? What am I going to do without my sister watching out for me? How do I watch out for you? I'm never out with you. You might not be with me, Rowan, but you always have my back. Whenever I need advice, reassurance, anything, you're there for me. Always. I've been thinking more and more about your bravery, and you've inspired me. You know, I think I'm finally going to ask Lark out. I gasp, just a little, then bite my lip. What? he asks a little sharply. You don't think I should? You think she'll say no? I... I don't know anything about relationships, I say truthfully. I think you should do whatever feels right. It felt right when Lark kissed me, but it was nothing like any kind of romance I'd ever imagined. Well, don't worry about that, he says, making an attempt to sound breezy. You have enough to think about. I sniff. Listen, I'm doing my best not to cry, too, so let's just look forward to the next time we can see each other. It will be soon, right? He looks so eagerly hopeful that I feel my throat tighten. But I manage to say, I'm sure it will be. Then I fling my arms around his neck. I can feel his tears dampening my shoulder. Mine are falling, too. It's not fair. He should know. But Mom, who has apparently been lurking just outside the door, bustles in and says it's time to go. Ash takes my hand and we walk out into the main living quarters. It's only for a little while, Ash whispers, more to reassure himself than me, I think. We'll be back together soon. I choke back a sob and hug him. Come on, we should go, Mom says. But you have to say goodbye to Dad, Ash says, with that same look of vague confusion I always see on his face whenever the issue of Dad's relationship with me comes up. Mom and I make sure it rarely does. She and I glance at each other now. Right, she says, nodding decisively. He's in his room. Go on, but be quick. I'd rather not, but with Ash watching, I should pretend there's at least some normal feeling between us. I knock softly at the bedroom door, but when I don't get an answer, I just push it open slowly. He's in striped pajamas, perched tensely at the edge of the bed. You're still here, he says. Oh, Dad, even now, even at the end, you can't just lie and pretend to just a little bit of feeling? Not a good luck or an I'll miss you or anything? Nothing. So I steel myself and say coldly, though with a tremor in my voice. For another minute, anyway. He nods, looking down at his knees. I search for anything. Sadness, anger, but his expression is unreadable. Mostly, it seems like he's been waiting. My cat just meowed. Hey, Max. He's been waiting for 16 years for me to conveniently disappear from his life, and now, if he can just hold out a little longer, he'll get his fondest wish. Okay then, Dad, I say, swallowing hard. Goodbye. I wait. 
Nothing except the crease of his frown deepening between his brows. So I leave. Leaving him is the one thing I'm truly glad of in all this mess. Boom! Chapter 10 is done. That was a lot. That was definitely a more emotional chapter. Um, but I hope you enjoyed, even though it was sad. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really know what else to say, because it was sad. But, um, anyway, uh, make sure to check in tomorrow around this time. So around, like, maybe 2.33ish, um, 3.30, so... In somewhere in that range, I will be putting up more episodes. Um, this one went, again, a little longer today. Almost 50 minutes. But that's fine. Um, so, be sure to look out for new episodes daily. Um, I read two chapters every episode. So, tomorrow we're going to be reading chapters 11 and 12. And I'll see you guys then, so bye!